0: So you buy a technology, energy-based device, an energy-based device for any one of the big players out there, be it InMode or Sinusure or Luminous or Elma, but you have a device like 250 other people in London do, and your ability to deliver that um, Is't a differentiator? And so in struggling to be a clinic owner, you've got to do things that differentiate. You've got to bundle things uniquely. You offer, let's say, cool sculpting plus a radio frequency and some secret sauce uh, that you don't quite disclose that you can communicate socially about why you're different.
1: Listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So, join me, Miriam Shaviv host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. How did a professional hockey player become one of Canada's most renowned aesthetic doctors? It sounds like an unlikely trajectory but it's a path taken by Dr. Stephen Mulholland, founder and owner of the Spa-Medica Surgery Center in Toronto. After retiring from his first career as a hockey player in Colorado and Sweden, he trained as a plastic surgeon and soon made his mark inventing procedures in reconstructive, trauma, and cancer surgery. In 1997, he decided to focus on aesthetic medicine, which was then in its infancy. Again, he became a pioneer, developing treatments like Body Tight and the Pan-G Lift and nowadays, he's a well-known presence on national TV, regularly appearing on shows like The View and The Today Show, as well as Real Housewives of Toronto, on which his wife stars. The clinic he founded is Canada's largest private laser skin center. We're delighted to have Dr. Mulholland with us today to discuss his path to success. Dr. Mulholland, it's so great to have you on How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. Welcome.
0: Thank you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion.
1: Fantastic. I want to start with somewhere slightly unusual with you, which is the beginning. Usually in these podcasts, we never start at the beginning. We start somewhere towards the end. Um, <laughs> but with you, I'd like to um, start because you had a very, very unusual start. You were initially a hockey player. Um, and for the benefit of our um, English listeners, we're talking about ice hockey here. Um, so, you, But you grew up in Vancouver, is that right? Where, where did you actually grow up?
0: I grew up up in Vancouver, uh, the son of first generation North Ireland, Belfast immigrants. And um, uh, we don't even even though my dad was a big footballer and loved that sport. I, of course, gravitated towards the Canadian game, which is ice hockey, not field hockey. Um, Loved hockey. And I left home when I was 17 to play uh, hockey in the West Coast of the United States and went on to play Division One college hockey, which is big in the Americas. Uh, and then I actually went to Europe, played in Sweden for a year, and then played with the Calgary Flames organization for three years, sort of like uh, Premier League of football. I was 26 when I decided to go to medical school. So the first 11 years of my adult life, I was a hockey player, which isn't exactly the culmination of cortex uh, and intellectualism. So it was an interesting time, but I did learn several things. Number one, Ain't nobody giving you nothing unless you take it. Number two, um, it takes a team to be successful and number three, if they ain't can lead, someone's got to lead.
1: So during those early years, did you have any interest in medicine whatsoever or was that really the furthest thing from your mind?
0: Well, I had a backup plan. Remember I went the college scholarship route. so athletic, American college athletic scholarships are a big way to enter major league baseball, major league football, major league hockey um and there is actually a football soccer league now but at the time there really was no soccer and so i did have an education which was a little unusual at the time and i always had a backup plan i was going to be a dentist that was my backup plan like that uh, 1950s cartoon uh, rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and the little elf who wanted to be the dentist i wanted to be a dentist because i loved my dentist he was an awesome guy And he had beautiful receptionists and tight white outfits. And uh, it was really quite a sexist concept, I'm sure. But it was the 1970s and everyone was thinking that. So my backup plan, foolish or not, was to be a dentist. But first and foremost, I wanted to play hockey. So I took science as an undergrad and then never opened a book again um, until I was 26. Now, when I was in Denver, which was the a major league affiliate of Calgary Flames, I met an orthopedic surgeon and he was the orthopedic surgeon for our team, for the the American football team, the Denver Nuggets and the basketball team. He's a pretty cool guy, got to meet John Elway, who was a big football star at the time. And, you know, and he was scoping joints uh, arthroscopically, which is big and new at the time. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I won't be a dentist, you know, if I'm not going to turn out to be Um, the, um, you know, the Wayne Gretzky of the hockey world or the Wayne Rooney of the soccer world, then I am going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so in my last year of hockey, I decided to go to medical school.
1: How did your teammates react to that?
0: Well, you you didn't really, you know, you were the college boy. So you kind of dumbed down your interpersonal relationships. To Well, you scaled it to the, you know, this social collectivism of uh, players that sometimes didn't even finish high school Uh, and so yeah I mean I didn't really disclose my secret plan that if I wasn't going to make it as a hockey player when I say make it like make it big or just go home then I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon that was not a conversation I had with them.
1: so it was the intellectual side something at that stage you felt that you actually had to hide in some way
0: yeah, so much. You're absolutely right. It was an um, intellectual snobbery amongst hockey players. Rarely were they college educated. Now, probably 30 to 40% of all pro hockey players went through the college route, not then. And so, yeah, I just, you know, you want to, you know, I was a, a top scorer and a team leader, and you want to feel part of the fraternity, not an elitist. And so I adapted.
1: And in terms of your family, would, did they want? Were they happy with you going the hockey route, or did they secretly want you to be the dentist?
0: Uh, yeah. Have you ever met anyone from Northern Ireland?
1: <laughs> sure.
0: They were just um, trying to get by. They had long since been divorced. It would have been a homicidal, uh, a homicidal outcome had they stayed together. And so, I was probably not top of mind. And they were just i um, glad that I was pursuing something I was actively interested in, but they were in a no position to support me economically. So when I left home, that was the last dime I ever took because there was no dimes to go around.
1: So you then started, um, you then went to a very different life where you went into, where you went to study medicine. What was that switch like initially? It must have been such a different world. Um, and also you were starting again in some ways.
0: It was uh, an interesting transition. I remember my last year of my three-year contract uh, with the Calgary Flames, uh, um, in my last year, I decided I was going to apply to medical schools. And so in the summer, um, between uh, my uh, final year, I studied again, and I hadn't studied for quite a few years, to write the MCAT, the Medical College Aptitude Test, and... uh, I always had a gift of a great memory and medicine as sort of deductive computation between tables of symptoms and relative differential diagnoses. So um, I studied that summer, did very well in the MCAT, which kind of, there'd be a lot of explaining to do, I felt, because I had been out of school for a few years and I had done well in undergrad, good grades. So I applied, applied to some of the top schools in Canada and the U.S., and Surprisingly, I got into University of Toronto and uh, McGill and UBC, a couple of American schools, but I couldn't afford them. Uh, So I decided, uh, having never lived in Toronto, to go to the University of Toronto because it was kind of the best, uh, not as well known internationally as McGill, but certainly had the most money and uh, the most research and had a a very good surgical program. So and there was a lot of hockey players I knew came from Toronto. So I moved to Toronto when I was 20 my twenties, late twenties to go to medical school, a lot were young out of their second year. Um, They don't
1: recognize you. Were you like a recognizable hockey face?
0: No, no, unfortunately, no, I was not recognizable. Uh, And I I had to adapt. My hair was very long. It was the seventies. I had to uh, remove the earring. Uh, And so again, adapt to a climate now of, uh, of, um, more academia and certainly medical pursuits. And, uh, that was a definite change in lifestyle.
1: And I'm sure, um, the change in lifestyle and also, um, there was this, you, you're essentially starting again. I mean, I guess most sports people, cause you have to succeed quite early, probably have to go through that transition where essentially you're starting life again.
0: It was <laughs> completely, yeah, you know, completely starting again. And, uh, but I was, I knew that, um, I knew that that chapter in my life, chapters, was over and that I was committed to this second phase and that uh, I felt I would be quite interested in being an orthopedic surgeon, specifically a sports team surgeon. And that's what I was committed to. Was a completely different lifestyle. I did transition socially, living with a couple of ex-hockey player friends in Toronto because the lifestyle and the social life of a medical student was completely foreign to me. There were no beer bong parties and bars and it was a it was a definitely a transition um but um, as the academic requirements became more strenuous my lifestyle of a hockey player was not conducive to medical studies so i kind of div- had to divorce myself socially from my previous lifestyle and actually just become like a medical student
1: and um, after you graduated, you were still not in aesthetics, but you did go into, into surgery or plastic surgery, is that right?
0: Well, I went into surgery, a department of surgery, and I was still interested in orthopedic surgery. Um, and so, yeah, I became a surgical intern, sh- intern at, in the University of Toronto Department of Surgery. And after a few uh, rotations in a couple of years, uh, I realized I didn't actually want to be an orthopedic surgeon. It didn't, it just didn't appeal to me intellectually on many levels, although it's a great specialty. and for the right person, it's awesome. It just wasn't for me. And so I had done a rotation on plastic surgery, quite liked it, uh, and I applied. Uh, and after my core three years of general surgery, I got in, I again, the University of Toronto plastic surgery, and I did, uh, I did that. Um, for three years in my third year, I did head neck oncologic reconstruction, some craniofacial facial trauma, quite like that. So then I sidestepped, uh, applied for a fellowship in ENT, otolaryngology, head neck cancer and oncology. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I got a consultancy position. I did mainly head neck cancer uh, for the first few years of my practice.
1: So this is all very heavily, um, you know, very cancer, it's very, you know, he- heavily medical, um how did you develop the interest in aesthetics not that I'm that's not hypothetical but it's different
0: so phase two was that phase um head neck oncology cranial facial trauma uh enjoyed it um but the lifestyle was again was rubbish you know it was long long hours and a lot of mortality and some people have a personality uh, that can deal with a lot of death and dying and head and neck smoker cancer there's Eighty percent mortality at five years, and uh, it just wasn't. I wasn't enjoying the death. I enjoyed the anatomy. I enjoyed the surgery, but they don't really, in your fellowship and train, they don't teach you the art, at least then, of death and dying. I wasn't enjoying that aspect of it. I didn't really do any aesthetics, but um, you know, after doing a lot of head neck cancer and neck dissections and large facial tumor eradication, a facelift didn't seem so difficult. And at that time, then I was in my late 30s, uh, I decided that, um, that I, I would make another life change and I would do aesthetics, control my lifestyle and try to work on my interpersonal uh, life and issues, which shouldn't be part of this podcast. And so uh, I borrowed a yeah, lot of you money. Know,
1: you, know, you, know, you know, they say that, um, that most people nowadays go through five different careers. Well, you've been through three, but what was it like making yet another
0: transition Uh, I was ready I was exhausted I'd worked very hard like through training and then the first five years of practice and in my sixth year um, there's this opportunity right down in Toronto Toronto's kind of like London it's the third largest metropolitan city in North America goes New York LA Toronto's about seven million people it's very multicultural
1: and if you remember last time we spoke. I ha- I've actually lived and worked in
0: Toronto. so. And people don't realize that uh, Canada is a relatively small country, but Toronto is a relatively big city and quite multicultural. So I borrowed a lot of money.
1: Uh,
0: a lot of money. And I, um, I, I bought out this business owner uh, who had a laser, um, or built a laser hair removal center in 1997. that was devoted to laser hair removal couple of other older lasers, a Pulse 9, a Q-Switch Ruby. And so I I bought this center and I I invested and built out um, an operatorium or a private surgery, component to it that had overnight stay. It was a private surgical hospital for cosmetic surgery. Uh, And uh, I remember borrowing a lot of money from Citibank and then uh, completing this build out And walking outside on Avenue road, looking up and down the street and wondering where the hell all the patients were. So I realized very quickly, OMG, I better learn the art and science of generating interest in an aesthetic business because no one knows who I am. And I have no reputation. This is in the, in the mid-90s when the only way to build your practice was good old-fashioned word of mouth. Still the best way to build it. But it certainly wasn't fast enough for me to pay Citibank the money I owed it.
1: So um, you, mentioned, you mentioned the funding a couple of times. And obviously, there's always an enormous outlay when you start to practice. Um, but did you feel that additional pressure? You kind of implied that you did not come from a wealthy background. No. that additional pressure there?
0: There was a lot of pressure. I mean, I... I didn't have parental money, which was fine. It always was an additional motivation that anything I was to do, I would have to finance it myself. Uh, and uh, the first 10 years of my life from 17 on, I learned simple management of a PNL, which is a household budget. And the principle of making more than you spend is pretty straightforward. You don't need an MBA of doing that. So by the time I opened but my business...
1: Never, but you'd never been a business owner before.
0: I had you not. Had and so this was um, the first time... Uh, that I'd had a business. So I did what most people do in my position. Um, I got a uh, how to market, and how to run business for dummies book, those yellow, yellow and black ones. And I read it cover to cover. It didn't seem too difficult. And I was fortunate that in my jurisdiction, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario had just, had just made legal the right for physicians to advertise. Had I opened my clinic two years earlier, and I didn't know the advertising laws of the college, there's no way I could have scaled my business fast enough to stay ahead of Citibank's um, financing obligation. And so I leveraged my, 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 um, uh, my medical service um, practice, my government practice to get the loan with no covenant or obligation to continue work in the public sector. So I got the money, did the build out, quit my job in the public sector to go private. Had I been a little less, um, a little less focused on scaling quickly, a little more mature, I might have transitioned out of my reconstructive and oncologic practice into a Harley Street type practice, which is what a lot of consultants do. They grow their aesthetic business over time. But that's not the you nature. You just
1: quit everything. Everything. You, it was like all, all your eggs in one basket.
0: Right. It's like hockey. When it was over, it was over. Like some relationships, you know, when they're over, they're over. Some people keep friends. I don't. It's like they're dead to me. And being in the, in the managed care system was dead to me. Fortunately, a couple things happened. Um, this gentleman that I bought the failed center from, I felt was onto something. Um, at that time,
1: because it was a failed center,
0: it was I was concerned, but I had a sense that we are entering a new era that this group of individuals I belonged to on the young end, born between 1946 and 1964 were turning 50 in big numbers and 50 is a big age, especially for a woman turning 50, menopause, estrogen, aging, and we suddenly had a lot of tools in the mid to late 90s, we didn't have in the 80s, we had this new thing called Botox. We had Restylane no longer collagen, with a skin test. And we had the first FDA-cleared device called a laser. We had intense pulse light, it was called a photofacial. These were all very, very new. And um, I had the opportunity to get to know a couple of these early uh, developers of these devices. And I, I think I realized that you know what, it may take me a few years to build my facelift practice, but I'm good and I'll get there. But I can be the first out of the gate in a very large city with things that actually make a difference. You combine a little Botox with a little filler and an IPL photo facial, um, you can create facial rejuvenation. We had laser hair removal, and there's a lot of ethnic and non-ethnic hairy women in Toronto, and no one was offering anything with a laser. So if you ask me what allowed me to scale the business 22 to 25 years later. It was the realization that non-invasive aesthetic medicine was about to explode. I had a downtown center with a couple of lasers that I had picked up at bargain prices and I wanted to be a facelift surgeon, augment and liposurgeon, but I was going to have to get there a different route and I was going to market and communicate to this demographic that we had very cool stuff that didn't require a scalpel and was affordable. And that realization, together with the ability to market and and an ability to communicate, um, I'd always done TV interviews, I was always the captain of the team, I was always going, oh yeah, we gotta go out there and win it for the team, you know, gotta play together. Um, I realized that I could communicate directly to the consumer through advertising or media that was available about stuff that was new. and wasn't traditional surgery.
1: Um, where did those first patients come from? Essentially, was it through advertising and through media?
0: Well, um, yeah, so I, I discussed with a few, um, people I knew who had businesses, ex hockey players, and, um, I read my small business operations for dummies and marketing for dummies. And I felt that, um, that advertisement was expensive. Traditional print and broadcast back in the day. Remember, there was no internet. There was pre-Windows 95, pre-dial-up, pre-internet. Uh, this was still newspaper, magazines, and television. Um, the boomers were an emerging demographic. There was no one talking to the boomers. And so I interviewed a couple of PR agencies, and I decided to spend what money I had on PR, a PR consultant. And I met this gentleman, John McKay, who 25 years later is still my publicist basically. And I was, there was no, believe me, there was no classic surgeons in the mid nineties with a publicist. He thought I was a bit crazy, but I said, listen, there's something happening here non-surgically. And there's a tremendous opportunity, these morning lifestyle shows and health network shows that were just emerging to communicate this message And I I believe this. So we had a series of three-month engagements. And 25 years later, we still have those engagements. So the first patients came from health network shows, morning shows, where I would go on, and I discussed Botox. I discussed soft tissue fillers. And I discussed laser rejuvenation. And anything with a laser back then was like, wow, this is pre-laser vision correction pre... And my first patients came from TV appearances.
1: So I'll tell you what, we're going to get back to your marketing so I really want to discuss your marketing in detail. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Um, but first, listening to you um, talk about how you, essentially you took you, you you had the vision, you saw what was happening in the industry, and you were able to get in early. Um, I'm just wondering, though, when when you look at um, at people who want to set up now. Mm -hmm. obviously they're they're at a different stage of that wave they're not you know none of that is cutting edge anymore so how can someone um essentially do what you did in this day and age when people like you have already done it
0: i get asked that a lot and um the the answer is simple yet complex number one the methodology of marketing has never changed you got to find them you got to wow them you got to grow them So there's no point finding a client through new media if you don't wow them. So get good at what you do, have things that work well. uh, And then you've got to hang on to every client you ever get. So internal marketing and growth through internal, is still the best way to grow your business, but you still have to get the phone during nowadays, no one calls. So you have to get the text messages rolling in email forms. And I would contend that uh, because I tracked, um, i tracked lead costs and lead generation volumes. Uh, for 25 years, it has never been easier to find a customer because we don't have just 80 million boomers.
1: It's so much more competitive. It's,
0: It's much more competitive. But if you take the number of potential millennials at 80 million, the number of potential old and dying boomers at about 80 million, that's one half of North America looking to look better, feel better, different demographics, different interests. And there's just not enough good providers. So first of all, be a good provider. Get good at what you've done, but don't worry about lead generation. There's more than enough business out there for a savvy practice that has the right technology and the good skill sets. And it's never been easier with uh, from Google AdWords, YouTube, social media, Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok, um, Twitter, to good old fashioned print and broadcasts or combinations thereof to scale your marketing budget, your awareness budget, uh, to the demographic. And so traditional print and broadcast is, it's not dead, but it's become almost irrelevant. And you don't need a big budget now to reach out to consumers and younger physicians and providers, nurse and judges and practitioners that grew up with um, a smartphone attached to their cochlea and to their cortex, they can't live without it. They just have to think how to connect with their, how did they find out about beauty products, aesthetic services? It sure ain't watching the BBC and it's going to be a handheld device and some sort of social platform. So it's never been easier to find the consumer. It's never been less expensive and it's never been easier to ruin your reputation if you don't protect it. So there's a number of fundamental elements to marketing now, but the barrier is not customers. It's,
1: is, what is doing it well. It's doing the It's
0: doing it well, and to reaching out intelligently and cost effectively, but it's never been easier.
1: So, what, in your opinion, makes is the key to good marketing?
0: Well, good marketing is is always and has never changed. It's around being um, good at what you do. And so in the old days you built a word of mouth practice because a bunch of people told everyone you did great nose jobs and facelifts and over 10 or 15 years they came to you. That hasn't changed. We've just been able to scale the awareness around you do good stuff. You do great laser treatments. You're a great injector. You do great lips. You, you um, do suture suspension really well, or you do traditional plastic surgery well. And how do people find out that now it's not their friends around Um, cribbage or bridge um, or uh, a social tea club discussing who did your face live. It's now scaled to massive proportions on uh, these rating sites and on social media. And people actually believe the third party review of someone they've never met about how good you are. So you need to be good. You need to create and protect your reputation online. And you need to promote that across different channels. And while that's percolating, you're going to spend some money on advertising. But it isn't going to be with magazines, not television, not radio. It's going to be with Google and Bing and Yahoo, probably Google and YouTube, and Facebook.
1: So where do you think, though, that I have my own opinions on this, obviously, but where mm. do you think that most market, that most um, practice owners who are not yet established are going wrong? Because very many of them really struggle to do exactly what you're saying.
0: I think there's a, it's an excellent question. There's a number of reasons why people do struggle. Um, the first and foremost is because they're just typical sometimes and typically they're not Differentiated. They're not that good. They have nothing different to communicate, no story that differentiates them, and they can't communicate what little story they feel they have. So, how compelling will they be on social media or in any other channel? So, they haven't actually figured out the wow. Find them, wow them, grow them. You can't wow them if you don't have a differentiator. Not everyone, not everyone can be the best injector in the world, but struggle to be good and learn to be good because if you market, and advertise an average product you're going to have average to less than average outcomes so i think yeah, most and, people and,
1: and they, of course the trap is that they're almost universally um, talking about the exact same treatments using the exact same language and that was
0: my and so as, to my point there's no differentiation so you buy a technology energy-based device an energy-based device for any one of the big players out there be it in mode or sinusure or luminous or elma but you have a device like 250 other People in London do, and your ability to deliver that um, isn't a differentiator. And so in struggling to be a clinic owner, you've got to do things that differentiate. You've got to bundle things uniquely. You offer, let's say, cool sculpting plus a radio frequency and some secret sauce uh, that you don't quite disclose that you can communicate socially about why you're different. You are not just a cool sculpting center. You're a body contouring center, and here's why. Or you're not just an injector. You're a facial shaper, and here's the differences. That there's, you've got to differentiate. So differentiate and penetrate. Penetrance isn't difficult. Differentiation takes imagination, sometimes skill, and you have to invest in the right technology. But technology alone won't differentiate you because everyone can buy the same technology.
1: You really need a good story and you also need to really understand the, the market in which you're operating because there are always gaps, no matter where you are, no matter how crowded you think it is, there are always gra- gaps there.
0: There's lots of competition, uh, but if you're just going to market the same mold and an average outcome, what do you compete then on price? And that's a race to the bottom of business success. Uh, if you're going to differentiate on price and be the lowest possible price at the least, um, uh, at the least impressive service, because you typically can't have awesome service, extremely low margins, you're really never going to be successful. And some people think, oh, they're not coming because we're expensive. No, they don't come because you suck or you don't differentiate on any other method, on any other level.
1: So you worked this out very early on. The first patients came. Um, and then what was the next step for you in actually scaling the practice?
0: Well, I already had an MBA in my mind. It was the masters of being around. And so I lived quite a lot in, um, in those 11, 12 years. And um, I had a good sense of people. I've always been um, um, a relatively high EQ. Um, with a commensurate IQ, but I could work with people, read people, and manage people. And that came from um, hockey and team interactions. Um, And so I knew I could scale this because I had great stuff. And yes, you're right. I was the first to market with some of the stuff communicating it, but I was communicating it well. And I was also a very good injector because I was a facelifter. I was, you know, how good do you have to be to manage a laser hair movement business? But I was the first. And so sometimes first to market makes a huge difference, especially a large market. And so I I saw initial wave of people. I said, this is brilliant. I need to somehow continue to get this message out there. And so I started taking some of my revenue, carving out a marketing budget uh, of about 10% of my top line to reinvest in not PR, but in typical advertising good old-fashioned print advertising, newspaper, magazines. Remember the Yellow Pages? I'm not sure if you had that in the UK, but it was basically at the old internet. Oh, I want a plastic surgeon. You flip through to the Ps, and there was a plastic surgeon. And, um, and then what I did is I hired nurses to do these treatments for me. Because I couldn't be in five rooms doing laser hair removal or a photo rejuvenation or doing Botox and filler. And I was the first practice, I think, in Canada, perhaps in North America, in 95, 96, to hire nurses and pay them to do laser and injection treatments for me. Now, I did them well as well, but I charged this and my delegator or my delegates charged that. So I created price differentiator, but they were certified by Dr. Mulholland. They worked for Dr. Mulholland. So I started to create a passive income stream that helped me cover my overhead and my but financing costs. no
1: longer dependent solely on you?
0: It was not dependent on a physician, but I was able and legally um, um, able to amplify my practice through, um, through delegation, a professional delegation in my jurisdiction. It was, a, it was, I could have hired probably at that time, a street cleaner, but I felt that I would go with nurses uh, because it seemed like the more credible route. Uh, and now there's a lot of regulatory control over who can do what, but there wasn't back then. And so I went with a nurse injector, even laser model. Eventually I switched the laser model to aesthetician and medical assistant, but I was a, a delegated center. So I hired nurses who are very personable who could do this. And some of them even worked in the OR on my OR day, and then were uh, non-OR nurses on non-OR days. And that allowed me to focus on my surgical business as well.
1: So at the same time, there were, were there parts of the business that you enjoyed more? And so did you, did you build the business in a way that allowed you to focus on the things that were that you enjoyed or to focus on the things that were actually essential for its growth, which are not necessarily the same thing at all?
0: Oh, they aren't. No, I became a technology, kind of a technology geek. I really enjoyed the technology play of the ultimate Ponce de Leon fountain of uh, photon youth that seemed to be emerging, that scalpels were going to go away through the lasers and medicine and regenerative techniques we're gonna we're gonna be endlessly youthful of course and thankfully as a facelift rejuvenation surgeon that hasn't come true however i will say that in the very early to mid-90s with people i met in the industry in israel and europe i became really quite connected to the aesthetic capital equipment industry and people that i I, I I knew um, I was always then invited to be on the on the cutting edge of what was coming in the energy based space as a good communicator of that technology, and so I felt you know this is this stuff works like laser hair was a huge breakthrough for many 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 women and men, uh, photo rejuvenation to this day IPL photo facial some of the that's one of the best innovations we've ever had, fractional, um, um, and then fat destruction technology. There's about four or five pivotal technology. Uh, um, and then other iterations of those technology paradigms that have changed. So in answer to your question, I became a technology geek, but through becoming a technology kind of guy, I was able to get industry relationship that allowed me to get the first to market with new technologies that were, were differentiated whether it was a tattoo and a picosecond or fat destruction and ultrasound and then cooling and then heating or whether it was skin tightening and fractionation. Um, And, uh, those industry relationships helped me create a whole other business unit, which is, you know, I I've founded, helped co found Cineron, which became Cineron Candela, founded Invasics, which became Invasics In Mode, and that became a passion of mine, which is technology development. But in the trenches, um, you know, I was always interested in injectables. Didn't found, unfortunately, Elegant and didn't found QMed. But I I realized that, wow, in the simple needle, if you have an artistic sense of what depressors and elevators and volume and shaping can do, and you integrate toxins with fillers with energy-based devices by the early 2000s, you could create facelift-like results without a scalpel. And that was astounding to me as a facelift surgeon. I could take women that were 45. By the time I was done, they would look 35, 36, 37. I'd say, you know what? I know you came in for this mini lift. We can put that off for another decade. Eventually, Isaac Newton wins. Eventually, a scalpel needs to excise something. But you can look perpetually 10 years younger, forever, if you wanted to. And that was a big revelation. And so initially, my injectable day was not my energy was not the most profitable, but I treated it as getting to know women and men upstream, have a relationship knowing they get their facelift later. As it turns out, many women will never do a facelift, but that relationship, which I treated with some disdain, to be honest, in the 90s, early part of the 2000s, became one of the most profitable days and most um, enjoyable days in my practice, which is injectable and energy-based facial shaping.
1: So what's your biggest regret looking back on all the things that you did to grow the, to grow the practice, what's, what was your biggest regret?
0: Biggest regret. That's a very good question. Um, My biggest regret was not buying the building that my primary um, surgical center is in. I had an opportunity to do so I could have leveraged again and done it. And I regret not doing it because the real estate prices in Toronto, as you well know, in London, uh, it's extremely, and that's the only regret I have. There's many things I did and I never regretted things that failed. I've always regretted things I didn't do. uh, And not having done and failed is a lot better than not having done. And I wish I had just leveraged one more time in the early 2000s and just bought the building. That would have been, but that's just money and that's just real estate ownership. And that, but that's the only regret I have. To, actually, I, I franchised, I have franchise systems. I created practice management software. I've worked with physicians across North America and the world. Yeah, I, I have no regrets. I've done many things that never worked out, many ideas that never panned out, but quite a few did. And so I do regret not buying my building.
1: So on that note, let's just take a very quick break. And then we come back, I want to get back. We'll finish off. I want to get, off, get back to the subject of your marketing. Hey, it's Miriam here again. And during this break, I have a quick question for you. How easy are you finding it to market to your patients now that your clinic has reopened after lockdown? Lots of practice owners are struggling. They're not sure what to say to patients in this new normal People are still recovering from the shock and the trauma of quarantine. Many have lost jobs and income. Sending the same old blunt promotions just doesn't feel appropriate anymore. You might be operating with a smaller team and a smaller marketing budget. And reopening your clinic is so much work, you don't even have the headspace to focus on marketing right now. If you can relate, let me introduce you to Inbox Express, That's our library of marketing emails written specifically for aesthetic clinics and med spas, just like yours. They're designed to make your marketing to your patient databases easy, as quick and as effective as possible. So you can get patients back through your doors again and again, even in these difficult times. All you need to do to get these emails working for your clinic or med spa is to fill in a few blanks, upload them to your marketing platform and hit send. You don't have to worry about messaging because it's all done for you. Each template takes an average of one to two minutes to customize, making your marketing more manageable during this pressured time. To find out more, visit inbox-express.com. That's inbox-express.com. I'll include the address in the show notes. So just take a quick look in the text under the podcast and you'll find it there. Now back to the show. Welcome back everyone. We're here today with Dr. Stephen Mulholland, one of the most, one of the best known um, doctors, aesthetic doctors and surgeons in Canada, um, talking to us today about his journey to success. Um, And Dr. Mulholland, I want to get back to your marketing, um, which it sounds like that was really the key to your success in general. Um, What marketing is working for you right now?
0: Uh, Right now, I would say that um, underpinning any lead generation or prospective client acquisition, the most important thing is get a good result and then never lose them. So the most important part of marketing is retention of a client that you have satisfied or met or exceeded their expectations. So you need to, in my opinion, um, you need to have some sort of... um, practice management software, PMS, that has CRM, customer retention management, you need to know when that toxin patient is delinquent and hasn't come back for their six month injection or that one year filler follow up or that four month photo facial, you need to have some way of reaching out to these patients and connecting and getting them back in the door. Many, many practices mm-hmm. beyond,
1: beyond the fact, yeah, I i agree. That's what we see as well. That the biggest asset most clinics have is their list of existing patients, and most of them they're so fixated right. on new that they never really right. leverage that asset, which to me is their number one asset.
0: Absolutely right. And so, many, many practices have this endless cycle, and this hasn't changed. I saw this in the 90s, the late 80s, the 2000s, the teens where people are stuck in that circle of new lead generation. Get a customer in the door, treat them, where's the next new customer? Rather than focusing on getting a wow for that patient and then growing them and never losing them. And so um, lead why generation- do think,
1: though, Why do you think they're so fixated on the new? Because it doesn't make any sense yeah. when, you have all these, when you have massive patient databases. Why do you think they're so fixated on the new?
0: I think number one is we're physicians. Um, a lot of physicians, we don't get business training. You know, we're, we, we we don't need to worry about follow-up in the NHS or in our managed care system here. They have to come to you. You're a captive audience. You hang a shingle and they must come back because there's nowhere else to go. They are captive. And sometimes when physicians transition to aesthetics, they think somehow – this patient's captive. They need to come to you. They don't. They have retail decisions and it's a retail consumer. And you, there's so many ways to piss them off. So I think if you're a physician, you don't realize the essential um, a retail relationship that you're in. They have choices. And yeah, if you're the best facelift surgeon in London, you can be rude. You can have a horrible receptions and never fall up because that's a special skill that no one has. But toxin, filler, energy-based devices, you better have a very... Um, customer-focused service uh, relationship, and then follow-up. Follow-up is critical.
1: What are your tricks?
0: (laughs) Tricks is, as you mentioned, have a database. At least have a spreadsheet. I mean, you should have good practice management software that allows you, uh, and it all exists now, there's good customer rotation management, but basically have a process. And so when you have an existing customer you have treated, whether it's with injectables or energy-based devices or surgery, you want to have a built-in retention and follow-up system so you want to use email marketing you want to use constant contact mailchimp take your database identify delinquency and reach out to them with an email and a follow-up like good old-fashioned phone call hey mrs smith we haven't seen you back after your cool sculpting we have this um energy-based radio frequency device and we recommend you come in three times here to keep that skin tight and we got a special Come in and see us, you're one of our existing clients. So good old-fashioned follow-up on existing clients that have done treatment. And then sub-segment your database. If they've done cool sculpting, never done Botox, Botox, never done filler, filler, never done. Start looking for opportunities by using your software and your database and finding cross-marketing opportunities and reach out to them. Have a monthly e-newsletter of specials, a BOGO, um, a, you know, bring not a friend monthly, in.
1: Not monthly, at least weekly. We recommend to our, to our clients that the, the more you, the, definitely we see a massive difference in response rates between the clinics that are emailing every week and the ones that are emailing every two weeks.
0: Right. The, the well, let's sort start with a clinic at least doing something. And at the very least, you should have at least a monthly uh, outreach. I would advocate that if you're sub-segmenting your database, you should be reaching out daily to smaller groups of individuals on a weekly basis, and you've got 15 to 20 different cross-merchandising and upselling um, opportunities out there. And so you want to cultivate... number. How
1: how hands-on are you now with your marketing?
0: I I am hands-on to the extent that I have a marketing team and we have a weekly marketing meeting and it's tied to the PL. And so if I was a doctor or a clinic owner, I would, say I would run it like a business. You have a profit loss statement. Your PL is based upon perhaps 10% growth per year. That'd be pretty reasonable. 20% would be aggressive. And I break my PL down into 52 one week uh, income statements. And uh, everyone knows what our income needs to be that week. And on Monday, we hit a button in the software projected sales. And if those projected sales don't meet the weekly sales, we have a problem. And as the owner will say, first thing, guys, what is our projected sales this week? And let's say the medical spa, it is $65,000. What do we need to make this week to hit our weekly 52 week PNL, $75,000. So next question, guys, what are you, how do you make up that $7,000 gap? okay, here's what we're going to do because they know me by now. We're going to break down the target database into opportunities and we're going to hire We're going to bring one of our nurses in on contract on a Saturday. We're going to fill her all and we're going to fill her with this special that's unique. We're going to find all the women between 35 and 55 have done 45 units of Botox, never done 60 or 65. We're going to have a one zone upsell. Then we're going to go after all the women have done this and not done that. So we're going to do internal cross merchandising. And it's so, also
1: about having it's also about the segmentation isn't it totally. being able to understand um right. give people really really focused um emails and offers that are really relevant to them
0: right so um we am uh, i hands on i oversee um from a bird's eye view but i know um all the elemental components at each segment of our business so i can drill down deep if my managers trying to um pull wool over my eyes. or I know the questions to ask. So I would say most business owners know your business from the inside out. And as you scale and get bigger, then always be willing to dig in. But you've got to have people that implement. And so even from, let's say, lead generation, how do you find those patients? Finding them is not difficult. Engaging them, getting in, and having them wowed and stay. That's the difficult part. So I focus most of my time on the post-wow growth of a customer. Uh, And then lead generation, you know, I don't like to waste leads. So whether it's social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, which is big in North America, or AdWords, or good old-fashioned organic optimization, once they fill out a form, text message form, which is the, we get nine of those now for a call. No one likes to call anymore, especially millennials, very sketchy You have to talk to someone. Millennials don't like to talk to anyone. And so we do a lot of drip marketing where someone will reach out, we have a form, we don't close them, but they get um, something week one, week two, week three, week four, I'll call it week two, I'll call it four weeks. And then we have enough lead generation after four weeks if we don't close them, then they get their uh, bi-monthly targeted text blast or email newsletter. And then we might have a season special. But it's not lead generation. Real secret to success as you grow is keeping patients engaged and bringing their friends in. Just like the nineties, bring your friends in, amplify that, and uh, go online and protect my and reputation. Having, most
1: important here is also having the process. I think that's the that's the thing you right. find,
0: find them, weld them, grow them. Find them, weld them, grow them. Find them, weld them, grow them.
1: Yeah, you generation. Build a sales funnel for them essentially. How has your marketing changed as a result of coronavirus?
0: Well, interesting. How's it changed as a function of time? And then, how's it changed as a function of coronavirus? Uh, my lead costs are half of what they used to be in the 90s. It used to cost me $250 to $300 to get a surgical lead. Now it's under $100. Non surgical leads have been cut in half. Why? Because we've doubled the market size uh, and my competition maybe isn't as sophisticated. So, I can turn on and off my paid ads and my organic ads. So, lead generation costs have gone down and the market has doubled but the number of good providers has not doubled. And so your listeners should be encouraged, just get good and then get profitable, but rarely are profitable of being good or perceived as being good. So get good or perceived as being good, communicate that message. And then the leads are easy to get. They cost about a hundred bucks a lead in a big city. That's it. That's nothing compared to what it was 25 years ago. Now, since coronavirus, I'm not sure about the UK, you guys have, You went through like a US-style Boris Johnson coronavirus mantra plan. You seem to pull it all together. But Canadians are very nice, and we follow instructions. And and so I would just say that it's a very interesting time. On this side of the Atlantic, both governments, US and Canada, have thrown billions and trillions of dollars into economic sustenance. And so... Uh, I read a report somewhere that the amount of available income for those who are going to spend on aesthetic medicine is higher than it was pre-coronavirus. We're talking mid-level management women or service women working at home on Zoom um, and no restaurants, no travel, nowhere to go. So what are they going to spend have it spare on? Cash. They have spare cash, more so than pre-coronavirus. They, the What has transitioned and pivoted instantly is access to these people. So gone our live consultations. And so the transition immediately and I kept all my staff on board and we transitioned immediately to a new website. SpaMedica had a facelift and we changed the website completely. We developed online consultation, uh, virtual consultation platforms, deciding DocSeeMe or GoTo or it couldn't be Zoom because it wasn't privacy law um, compliance. You needed a um, um, privacy law compliant platform. I chose GoTo, but could be doxy. I'm not sure in the Atlantic, across the Atlantic UK, what well, that can be, but we decided a platform. I trained my consultants on the, on the art and uh, science of uh, virtual consultation, which is good lighting, good messaging, good background, but just like closing tools and tactics and getting these people, um, to buy skincare online, which is the only thing we could sell for about 10 weeks. Uh, by uploading a photo analyzing a photo and shipping to source so the whole culture moved online and now interestingly um consults now i, I don't think i'm ever going to go back to live consultations unless the market forced me to because these women don't want to come in they wanted to have a virtual consult and they'll close right like they're doing the virtual consult interesting have
1: your messaging change tools
0: completely that? it's all now about uh safety so in opening up in Toronto, the first thing was to be safe with your staff. If they don't feel that they're coronavirus safe, they're not going to come in. They're not going to feel confident. And, and there's then still
1: the- communicating about that because what we've seen is that lots of clinics they communicate about it once when they reopen and then they never mention it again.
0: Yeah. So um, as part of Spa Medica, we have our COVID nineteen and your mm-hmm. aesthetic section. And that is a, a big heat map. When I look at um, at, at Google um, uh, and, and analytics that people wanna know, why am I gonna come in there? How am I gonna be safe? So we communicate that message of safety all the time from safe filters to N95 shields, plexiglass. I mean, it's coronavirus Fort Knox and they need to know that and feel that to be confident to come in, especially get the facial aesthetic treatments. Transitioning and pivoting to hands-free technology, especially in this day, Uh, You know, when you're getting a body treatment or a face treatment that's hands-free, fat destruction or skin tightening or facial rejuvenation. So having the right hands-free technology, having the right safety and messaging. So when they're getting a facial treatment, when you're in that one foot zone, they need to feel they're not going to be inspiring a bunch of coronavirus. So you got to communicate that you're absolutely right in every message.
1: I've got one last question for you. Um, I want to look back, looking back at your entire journey, and we've discussed a lot of things here today. I want to go back to the beginning, mm-hmm. um, back to the hockey, really, which is where which is where we started. Um, and right at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned um, that there were some things you learned along the way that influenced you. And I just want to get back to that, and revisit that. Um, looking back at your entire journey, all of these three essentially different careers. Um, what did you take right from the beginning, um, from that hockey part that has really influenced um, the way that, you've, that you have succeeded as an aesthetic doctor?
0: Well, there's philosophical and practical things that I learned. Um, the first is that when, um, when someone said, no, you can't, I found that fundamentally an affront to uh, my approach and that if someone said no, that didn't mean no, it meant I would find a way to make it yes. And so determination in the face of apparent adversity, don't, um, don't let people tell you no. Number two, in and order to be.
1: You resilience essentially. Well,
0: well, yeah. There, there are always ways to make a no a yes. Just find a way and don't take no for an answer. Number two, that, um, being an, a, an excellent aesthetic physician or an aesthetic practice is a team game. I wasn't in tennis. I wasn't Stan Smith, Rod labor I'm, labor. I'm trying to be communicating to the UK market. Um, and so okay. it's a team. Sport.
1: All listeners are in Amer- North America. So that's fine. Don't
0: worry. Okay. So I need to, um, I needed to have a good team. Uh, and it's a team game. Uh, and um, I was always captain at any team I ever played on. So I knew the fundamental elements that were important to building a team and how to be a leader. I'm a terrible manager, but that's okay. I can hire managers, but you need a leader. And um, so I needed a team to be successful. And I knew that it was just in different endeavor. And number three, uh, the importance, um, the, the, the most important thing about looking back on 25 years is not so much the business of medicine or even the aesthetic space, it's the importance of interpersonal relationships and family and uh finding a a great woman and wife who supports you in the journey uh having time for the kids because without family without a a good spouse it's really not worth much of anything Uh, and so uh being grounded in um in a life uh an interpersonal life that you're happy with helps fuel um your work but it can't all be about work. You've got to have time for family and without family and human relationships, it's all just meaningless um, churning of monetary outcome, which is fun, but it's not the primary reason we exist.
1: That is a beautiful note um, to, to end on. Although I can, I would love to hear more. Maybe, maybe that's for another podcast, both about leadership. Um, and you did mention family. I know that you have family on, on the real wives of, uh, of Toronto. Is yes. that kind of right? yeah mm. the, the second she's
0: doctor is amazing she's amazing she's amazing she she's amazing so without an amazing um spouse and a bunch of kids it's all seemingly meaningless make it all worthwhile correct
1: fantastic Um, dr mulholland it was a pleasure having you here today thank you so much thank you, for your insights um if people want to get in touch with you how can they how can they do that
0: um the best way would be through a uh, Patricia Gannis, my personal assistant of 20 years, and she's typically very awesome. Um, I, one thing I don't do, I never read emails. Um, I don't look at text messages. I try to focus on things that are forward thinking, not. Uh, and so, Patricia Gannis, Patricia G at spamedica.com, Patricia G at com, and then she will likely connect us. And um, that's the best way.
1: I will put that in the show notes, um, together with, of course, links to to your website um, and to your social media presence, um, so which is very, very extensive for anyone who wants to, you can look that up. Um, Dr. Mulholland, thank you very much again. Um, And everyone else, I will see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. I'm Miriam Shaviv, Director of Content at Brainstorm Digital. Have a great day.